0: One of the best ways to spend a Sunday afternoon um, is watching Westerns. (laughs) A a personal favorite of mine is just Westerns. I, I enjoy Westerns because typically you can, it's the same formula. You know, bad guy shows up, does bad things. Good guy shows up, fights bad guy, wins. You know, good wins in the end. It's just a microcosm of uh, of the way the world will go. But uh, you may remember back in the '60s, I guess it was, or at least in the in the reruns that uh, made Clint Eastwood famous with the series of spaghetti westerns. Remember they called spaghetti westerns because they were Italian spaghetti westerns, uh, and um, he was the man with no name. Uh, uh, hang 'em high and uh, what was the... Good bad. Good, bad, and the Ugly. That's, that's the, like the greatest hit of The Man with No Name, you know? Fistful of Dollars. Fistful of Dollars, exactly. So, okay, obviously you remember then. <laughs> the Man with No Name. And it's funny we call him The Man with No Name because it's Clint Eastwood. We, we, we know that he doesn't have a name in, in the movies, but this actually is what sort of associated Clint Eastwood with Westerns, was the fact that he didn't have a name... In these movies, he was called the man with no name, and he, his name was then associated with Westerns, even though there was no name in the movie itself. Names are essential for identification. In fact, even in that movie, I think they called him Blondie, so they, they came up with a movie, with a, with a name anyway. Names are essential for identification, even when you go through fast food. The thing is, fast food, it doesn't matter what your name is. And I've learned that because when I tell them my real name, they never get it right. I mean, going through Starbucks one time, I told my name is Wayne, and they wrote wine, W-I-N-E, on there. And I thought, that's not what I ordered. <laughs> but here it is, right here in my hand. And when I go through Chick-fil-A and other places, uh, they, Wayne is just a problem for people. I don't understand, and so I've just decided, look, it doesn't matter what I tell you my name is. I, the goal is, identify this human with that bag of food. So I usually say Bob, because how can you mess up Bob? <laughs> right? <laughs> you can't mess up Bob. I mean, you don't have to ask me how to spell it. You don't have to ask me how to say it. And one time I got up there, and they said, uh, is it for Bib?" Said, yep, yep, I'm Bib. Let me let me have it. Well, a few years back I was at a checkout line in a grocery store, and I think it was on Halloween, if I remember correctly. And I'm there getting whatever it was, milk or some, some simple thing. And I noticed that the lady, the young lady that was doing the check the checkout of all the groceries, had, you know, every every all the employees were kind of dressed up because of Halloween. And this lady was dressed. She wasn't dressed up, but she had a name tag on, one of those Hello, My Name Is name tags. And it said, Hello, My Name Is, and in big letters she had written, God. And I thought, whoa, I can't let that go. We're going to have a conversation. (laughs) So anyway, it got up there to be my turn, and I said, your name is God. And she just kind of smiled at me, and I, I said, you know, you got some pretty big shoes to fill and she said who says he has to be a man (laughs) I just let that go and I said I said you know I love your book (laughs) but I have some questions and she, she kinda looked at me funny and I said because you are a perfect and holy individual how can you allow anyone imperfect in your presence? She just kind of looked at me and she said, I don't know. And I said, it's because of your grace. At least that's what you wrote in your book. She's, and, then, and she just kind of looked at me and I said, now what about justice? I mean, you're, you're gracious, but how do you punish those who do wrong? And she, she's, she actually held her hands up like this and she says, look, she says, look I'm just here till 7. <laughs> so anyway, I think she she charged me for milk about three times as we were talking. <laughs> but it was fun. It was a good. It, it ended up being a, a good conversation. But seriously, I mean, if you had an audience with God at the checkout stand, um, what would you ask Him? I mean, we've got questions for God. And questions that only God can understand, in spite of the fact that we've read His Word. There are some things in the Scriptures that we just don't get because of the limitations of our humanity. There are some things that only God's going to be able to solve, and that when Christ comes in His kingdom. Well, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 25. We're in the home stretch of this book, and some of you are probably really glad about that. Others, hopefully, have been greatly encouraged by this book that has been a surprising blessing to us as we look at the timeless truths that seem to be so initially irrelevant to us in a book that we so seldom read and when we do, we so seldom understand and much less can apply what it's saying. We won't look at the details of chapter 24, you could glance at it if you'd like, uh, the first part is focuses on the lamp and the bread for the sanctuary uh, things that we've discussed already previously and it's repeated here for different reasons starting in verse 10 of that book of that chapter though is a, a story that is sort of unique for Leviticus about a half Egyptian half Hebrew man who who cursed the name of God right there in the camp and it's sort of like you know when somebody says something bad and everyone just goes gets quiet and they brought him you know, before Moses, and it's like, what do we do with this guy? Because we heard him curse the name of God. And it wasn't just a slip of the tongue. This was an out-and-out out, uh, intentional. And, of course, the, the um, solution was to take his life. It was a very severe punishment, capital punishment. But it was one of those teachable moments, is that the name of God is something that you don't take lightly. And I know this isn't our, this isn't our major point here as we look in Leviticus, but it's enough to say that cursing God or using God God's name in a curse is not just like what we hear in the movies or what you say when you bust your hammer with with uh, bust your thumb with a hammer. Yeah, I guess you could bust your hammer with your thumb, but boy, that's a pretty <laughs> tough thumb. But cussing or cursing, if you think of it that way, it's interesting how that, that's a connection is uh, something that we do, and we only do it with the name of God. You notice, if you smash your thumb, you don't go, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you, you, it's, it's different. <laughs> you, don't, you don't say, you know, Benjamin Franklin or, or something else. It's usually the name of God that is the, the curse. And even when we say to someone else, you know, damn you, we're, we're, that's a curse. To be cursed is to be damned. And to put God's name with it, it is simply just wanting or cursing, wanting to curse that person, that they would be cursed by God. So it's really sort of a, a, a misapplication to think that blaspheming God's name is simply to say, you know, that. Um, it really isn't, is much more than that. It's to waste the name of God. To to blaspheme God's name is to waste God's name, is to use it in a manner for which it wasn't intended. And we can do that all the time. Essentially that, that chapter, if we were to make a whole lesson on it, is just telling us that we need to speak and act as if God's reputation is at stake. That when we're talking to other people, it's the reputation of God that we're ultimately representing. I think Paul said somewhere speak and act and do everything in the name of Jesus. His name is associated with his character. But here in Leviticus 25, we're going to be looking at um, the last two holidays or holy days. We've sort of looked at that as we've looked in chapter 23 and chapters prior at the various holidays or holy days of ancient Israel. And Leviticus 25 looks at the last two, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And, of course, there's no surprise that these have relevant applications for us. So let's look at these. Chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you, sh- you shall sow your field, And six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So, interesting. Every seven years, for a whole year, the land had a break. The land lay fallow. You would just leave it alone. And obviously, those of you who have a farming background know the wisdom of this, of giving the land a break, to allow the nutrients to replenish themselves. Sometimes you'd rotate your crops in order to basically keep going, but just, you know, do different things in different places for the same reason. But God says the land, we're not talking crop rotation, we're talking you leave the land alone. A whole year you don't work the land. Now, can you imagine if we did that with our vocations every seven years? That you didn't work. Sometimes um, those in academic circles or in ministry take what is called a sabbatical, like a sabbatical time, and it comes from this idea of uh, after every number of years, you know, the the institution gets to determine what that number of years is, but you have a break from your normal duties in order to refresh and to replenish. It's the same idea. But Leviticus almost, the Lord almost uh, uh, personifies the land as if, it's, as if it's tired, and by giving the land a break, they were also, of course, giving the people a break. Keep your finger here in Leviticus, if you would, and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and let's look at a very interesting connection to this very chapter, 2 Chronicles 36. In a way, I, I say sort of tongue in cheek, can you imagine doing that? Because no one ever did. This sabbatical year is something that no one ever did, is, that's recorded in the scriptures. Now, maybe Hezekiah did, there's some hints that maybe he did it, but there's nothing uh, plainly stated throughout the scriptures that the people gave the land a break. In fact, we all we almost have the very uh, words here in 2 Chronicles 36 that they didn't do that, that they didn't give the land a break. Chapter 36, look down toward the end of the chapter at verse 20. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 20. Of course the context of this end of 2 Chronicles is looking back at just prior to the exile. So they've Leviticus is written before they even get in the land and now Second Chronicles is written after they've uh, been in the land and they're about to be taken out of the land. And look at why this happened and how long it happened. Verse 20, those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So, 490 years of ignoring the Sabbath year gives you 70 years to let the land lay fallow. That's why the exile was 70 years long, because they hadn't been observing the Sabbath year. And God says, You know what? We're going to give the land its Sabbaths all at once. Seventy years in a row, boom. This is why the exile lasted as long as it did. Back to Leviticus now, 25. It wasn't done, and yet God says you're to do it. How did God feed his people in the wilderness? Manna, exactly. Every morning you go out, and there's this stuff that just sort of appears. In fact, manna is from the Hebrew that means, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Uh, it's, it's so funny whenever uh, I'm in Israel and my guide and, his, and, and the driver are talking. Of course, they're always talking in Hebrew. And back and forth, they'll always say, ma, ma, ma. They're saying, what, what, what? They're talking to each other. But ma, na, what is it, is what manna means. Mana. Ma, 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 ma. I've heard that once. I've heard it a million times in, uh, in Israel. What is it? So every week or every day they'd go out and they'd get manna. But what about Saturday morning? Well, there's no manna on Saturday morning. Why not? Sabbath. So what would you eat? Double portion from the day before. Exactly. So the day before, God would provide double portion. So you go out on Friday, you gather double the, double the amount of manna, because on Saturday, you, uh, there's not going to be an, enough. The nothing there for you. And if you tried to keep it over, if you tried to keep extra beyond that extra day, what happened to the manna the next day? Worms in it. See how this system is just perfect for the spiritual life? You've got to trust God and you've got to do it his way. You've got to do it his way. They learned that when they went out and they picked it up, it was God who provided. So the Sabbath year required God's people to trust him for that year they didn't reap because they would, God would provide uh, a whole a bumper crop the year prior to the Sabbath year so that you would have plenty to take care of you during that year when you weren't to touch the land at all. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8. You are also to count all seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that, you, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely, 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all throughout your land. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim it a release throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. There was a... um, an eight, uh, a three-year-old girl from Rochester, New York, who got an application in the mail, three-year-old girl, got an application in the mail with her name on it for a visa card. And her mother opens it up, and it so amused her that she thought, well, I'm gonna just have some fun with it. And so she fills out the occupation as toddler. She leaves the income line blank, just put a scratch through it, and she wrote also on the application uh, I'd like to have a credit card to buy toys, but I'm only three years old, and my mommy says no. <laughs> and she sent it in. And a couple weeks later, she gets her card <laughs> with her name on it. I, I read this week that America's credit card balance has passed $1 trillion, or it's about to. The average household carries $10,000 in a balance month to month. God had an interesting system set up where three things happened. The jubilee meant that at least once in your lifetime, at least once, every 50 years, you got to start over financially. There was no filing for personal bankruptcy. If you got into debt up to your ears or you sold your land or even sold yourself as an indentured servant, At the Jubilee, three things happened. You were set free, your land was returned to you, and your debts were all canceled. Now, for many people, this meant that you got your father back. It meant you got a fresh start with perhaps some hard lessons learned. And notice, too, what we read there in verse 9. It says that this takes place on the Day of Atonement. This is significant because it, it makes a connection to the fact that this is the grace of God that's doing this. This isn't God just giving a boost to the economy. This is God making a connection that my daily provision for you, my forgiveness of of debt, um, you getting your land back, you being set free, your debts all canceled, are connected to atonement, the day of atonement. This happens because of a substitute that dies on your behalf. Now, we won't look at it, but the text goes on to give the details of it. You'd return to your property, the stipulations of how the sales were made, how they were prorated, etc. But basically, if you had to sell your land, another bought it from you at a prorated rate. So if it was so many years until the Jubilee, that's how much the land is worth. You're basically buying years of crops, and that's how it worked. So it wasn't, I mean, it was a system that was rigged to work, to work very well. The natural question, then, would be in verse twenty Look at verse twenty. But if you say what are we to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will order sow my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you were sowing the eighth year you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the crop until the ninth year when the crop comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. The land is not to be sold permanently. So this last group of seven years was to be sort of like the Sabbath year. What am I supposed to eat? God says, I'll take care of you. I'll I'll give you a bumper crop that'll take care of you not only for the year of the crop, but the year of doing nothing, and then the next year of growing. So three years, that is some crop, that final year, isn't it? And God says, "I'm going to take care of you, but you've got to trust me, and you've got to do it my way." So Is, Are you asking a question, or just... OK.
1: You know, I don't recall that they do
0: that they did. I don't recall that they did. So good. The question was, was there ever a jubilee year recorded in the scriptures? So I don't know that any of the Sabbath years were ever honored, uh, at least according to the Second Chronicles. Maybe Hezekiah, again, it's not totally clear if Hezekiah participated in that or not. But it, it's sort of mind-boggling to think that you've got godly kings like Josiah, Hezekiah, even David, Solomon in the early days that didn't follow this. Uh, they did the Day of Atonement, they did Passover, But uh, for some reason, it's just too hard to keep your hand off the land when it makes money, in spite of God's promise that you're not going to lose a dime in the process. So the land's not sold permanently, and the guy who gets it has to give it back. And it's not a punishment for the wealthy or to keep people in some sort of socialism, but it was a lesson. It was an essential lesson that possessions are only ours for a time that God gives, God provides, but there's a reason that He provides because it's all His anyway. He says, the land is mine. So here's a principle that we can pull from the text. Our hands should hold loosely our possessions because they're all God's and they're ours only to use for a time. Our hands should hold loosely our possession for they are all God's, meaning God's possessions, and ours only to use for a time. I I like to think about the president and the White House when I think about this. You know, the president comes into the White House and he's able to just like repaint the thing, he's able to put up shelves, do whatever he wants. I mean, he's got four years, maybe eight years to make that place his own. But then he's got to leave. He has to leave. It is a law. Is the house his to use as he pleases? Absolutely. But then he he moves into it knowing one day he'll move out. We don't know that about our homes necessarily, but I think it's a healthy perspective. You take everything that you're getting from God, but you hold it with an open hand because he may want to take it back. He may have a different plan. You may build a house thinking you're going to be in that house for the rest of your life. God says, no, you're really only going to be there about two years because I've got plans for you. I've got plans for you to move. And we're not just talking about houses, land, and money. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as an offering. And then when Abraham lifted up his arm to do exactly what God promised, God said, stop, don't lay a hand on the boy. Because God didn't want Isaac. God wanted Abraham. God wanted Abraham's heart. Have you considered my servant Job? God asks Satan. God allowed Job's possession, his children, his health to be taken. And Job came through with flying colors, and then God basically gives it all back. Think about the land that you live on. I mean the actual dirt that you sleep on. I don't mean you sleep on dirt, but I mean your house is built on top of dirt. Think about it. The dirt beneath your house has been there for thousands and thousands of years before you came along. The hills that surround your neighborhood haven't moved since God put them there at creation. But if we think about it, someone else lived there before us, and after we live this life, another title holder will own your house. And in my case, they will get to enjoy all the trees I planted as saplings. You're welcome. (laughs) But then as now, the land belongs to the Lord, not to people. We are simply stewards. Our name's on the title, but it's only our name on the title by God's grace and God's gift and God's provision. It's his land. Everything we have is God's. And by giving a portion of it back on a regular basis, we are communicating to the Lord that we understand it's all his, that it's not ours. The sabbatical year also reminded them that the land was God's, as did the year of Jubilee, when God gave the land back. We need the reminder that God loans us his things, that it's not, they're not ours. Even though we may have worked hard to earn them, even that, God has given us the ability to do it. Here's an interesting way to think about it, and I hope you never forget this. I hope I never forget this, that everything we have is either a tool or or an idol. Everything we own is either a tool or an idol. It's a tool for God's kingdom or it's an idol for ours. I'll never forget uh, hearing somebody
1: say one time to me, This is our ministry. I'm here thinking, Hmm, it really isn't, it's God's. It's God's ministry. Everything we own
0: is either a tool or an idol. That is so helpful. And this goes not just with the cars in the driveway and the houses on the lot, but the people that God has in our lives. A tool or an idol, a blessing. As far as our possessions, God requires the best of us. And upfront. this is why... In the Old Testament, the, uh, you take the tithe or the, the portion that you gave to God right off the top. The first fruits is what you gave to God. You didn't get the whole crop, and then you decided, you know, I'm going to give this part to God. God says, nope, the first part that comes along, you give to me, trusting that the rest is going to come. God wants us to trust him. He's rigged our lives to trust him. And sometimes he keeps us right on the edge of our means so that we have to trust him. Doesn't that drive you nuts? That drives me nuts sometimes. Like, Lord, I would just love a little more cushion, you know, in in the bank account. I love a little more cushion in my health. I would love just a little bit less of the stress of having to trust you all the time. Think about it. Has there ever been a time in your life where you haven't had to trust God for something? I don't know your situation right now, but I know your situation right now, especially you, Ed. You have to trust God. You're trusting God for something. And it's rigged. It's not bad news. That's a good thing. We are created to be dependent on the Lord. And we see one of the most beautiful parts of the Jubilee down in verse 39. Look at verse 39. It says, If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, You shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave
1: sale. I
0: was very, very much interested, I think this was some months back when it was being purported, or proposed I should say, of the president's effort to forgive college loans. Remember see, I remember reading that and thinking, I bet that's gonna pass. And then I thought, man, I did it the hard way. I worked and put our girls through school and paid cash for the whole deal. Anyway, that's something totally different. When you think about it, when we hear about other people's loans being forgiven, I think, you know, I don't like that. I want my loans forgiven. I've got some loans I would love to have forgiven. But it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective when we think about the grace of God or the grace of forgiveness in other people's lives versus our own. We want justice for others. We want grace for ourselves. And yet here we're told in Leviticus 25 regarding the, this this countryman of yours that becomes so poor that he sells himself to you. He basic, basically, the Lord says in verse 42, they are my servants. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. We are, you are all equals. We are all equals in the, in the sight of God. And if God chooses to give grace to some and not to others for his sovereign reasons, we, uh, we need to trust him with that. The Jubilee gave an economic overhaul. Everybody starts fresh, all debts forgiven. Now, let's leave Leviticus and turn to Luke chapter 4. Did you know that Jesus' first recorded sermon was about the jubilee? Luke chapter 4. Some years back, Kathy and I were up at the mall, and we were in this store. Um, I think we were buying clothes for our girls or something. But the store actually had Christian music playing, and uh, whenever I hear that, I always try to go over to the proprietor, whoever's there, and just say, "Hey, I like your music. You know, I thank you for, for playing music that uh, is encouraging." And she said, "You're welcome." And then I noticed some hesitancy on there, and anyway, we got into a conversation, and I asked her what church do you go to. She says, "I don't, I don't go to church." And I said, "Well," Do you mind if I ask why? She says, yeah, I tried church, and uh, I had a man come up to me and tell me, you're sitting in the wrong seat. Wouldn't you like to get a hold of that guy? She said, basically, it just sort of turned her off to the whole church thing. And my wife made a great statement. Kathy said, don't let that man rob you of the blessings that can be found at another good church. That is a great statement. Don't let one jerk rob you. That's probably. That's what I would have said. One jerk rob you of the blessings that could be found at another good church. And so she lived right here in Frisco, and so we told her about our church, and she said she'd come, and I hope she did. And I hope she was able to sit wherever she wanted to sit. <laughs> But this is the grace of God. Jesus first preached his first recorded sermon on the subject of the Jubilee. Luke chapter 4, look at verse 16. Luke four sixteen. As he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus quoted from Isaiah, and I love the fact that Luke says that, that Jesus looked and found the part where Isaiah says. It wasn't just happened to be, here's the reading for today but it says that he opened the book and found the place. So Jesus finds the place in Isaiah where Isaiah says this, and Jesus quotes about what the Messiah would do in ushering in the ultimate and final jubilee. But Jesus only quotes or reads part of the prophecy. If you were to look back at the full context of Isaiah, you'd see Jesus sort of stopped right in the middle of it, and it says here almost abruptly, Luke says, he read this and then closed the book. Because the first coming is being fulfilled, Jesus says, that day, boom, right there. But the second part that talks about the justice of them, that the Messiah is going to bring in the kingdom, that is actually for Jesus' second coming. But that's helpful for us to remember because the first part he quoted he fulfilled in their hearing, but it's going to be in the future, at Christ's second coming, that the promise of vengeance and consolation and comfort will be given to us. How did Leviticus 25 define the Jubilee? Debts canceled, prisoners freed. You return where you belong. Think about it. When Christ died on the cross, all of your
1: debts were canceled. He paid for them all.
0: Everyone. Every sin that you've ever committed in your life and every sin that you ever will commit because when Christ died on the cross, they were all future anyway. So all your future sins have been paid for as well, and all of mine. And we're told that all we have to do to have that, that promise of forgiveness apply to our account is just believe it. Just believe it and receive it. Trust in the work of Christ and not your own good works to earn you heaven. And three days later, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was proof positive that our sins indeed had been forgiven. It was proof that it had happened. There's a third principle, or a next principle, that we can get uh, from all of this together, looking at it, and it's this that our hope for rest and release is found in the ultimate year of Jubilee when Christ rules the earth. Our hope. Is found in the ultimate year of Jubilee when Christ rules the earth. That's what we're looking forward to. Unfortunately, though, we can't do a countdown like you could with the real Jubilee. You know, the Jubilee in the Old Testament, you can think, ah, I only got 35 more years of this and then I'm free. <laughs> we don't have that with the coming of Christ. Plus, we got the rapture in front of it that adds another seven years to the whole thing. So we don't know when Christ is coming, but we know that He is. We know that he is. The second coming, as we call it, is often a foggy notion in biblical prophecy. It actually is more of a, the second coming is actually more of a, a, a series of events, ultimately with Jesus' feet landing on the Mount of Olives and beginning the, um, the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. But the, um, the rapture is our, is our hope. It's the next event. We're not waiting on anything to happen before Christ comes for us. According to 1 Corinthians 15, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, all we're waiting on is Jesus. And that could happen at any moment in the twinkling of an eye. When I ran my uh, first marathon, which is another way of saying my last marathon, it it just sounds better to say my first marathon, Every mile that I passed, I didn't think about, oh, I've gone five miles. Whew, I've gone 10, 11 miles. No, I thought I only have nine more to go. I would think of it the other direction, which is a helpful way to think about life when you just sort of think about the average lifespan of people. Most of us don't have far to go. We are in the downhill stretch of looking toward being in the presence of Christ. Knowing that it was going to end, here's the point. Knowing that it was going to end, I knew I only had five miles to go, two miles to go, point whatever to go, and then I'm done. We know that we only have so far to go. And knowing that it's going to end gives you the strength to keep going, to not quit. There's two big challenges whenever you're running, at least for me, and it's One, to take a shortcut, because I know all the shortcuts. I know them all. It's always too hard, right in the middle of the run. You think, ah, this is a weird day. I'm just going to cut it short. So that's number one. Another is just to quit. Just think, you know what? I'm walking from here. I'm done running. Always. Those are my two biggest things, to quit or to take a shortcut. Life is that way. And those are two big temptations in life as well. It is hard in the middle of the run. Beginning of the run's great, everybody's cheering, yay, you got plenty of energy. End of the run's great, everybody's cheering, it's done. But it's the middle that we live most of our lives, that hard middle where nobody's cheering, where nobody's running with you. It's just you and the Lord and your perseverance. The Jubilee gives us the principle that there's hope, and the hope has a solid countdown. We don't know it, but God knows it, and it's coming. So don't give up. Keep going. You're tempted to quit. You're tempted to take a shortcut. Don't do it. Trust God and keep walking faithfully. Keep running faithfully. Our life should reflect the belief that all we have, God's provided. Our hands should hold loosely all our possessions, because they're God's anyway, and he gives them to us as stewards. I read last month where an estimated two million dimes were stolen from a northeast uh, Philadelphia Walmart uh, parking lot. Some truck that was coming from the Mint, and evidently this is a common thing, they don't make their whole journey at once, and so they'll park in a parking lot, leave their truck with all these dimes or all the, all the money, and then they'll go sleep overnight in a hotel, wake up the next morning, and finish their drive. Evidently, this is the way, it's, the way it's done. Well, someone caught on to the fact that this truck has all these dimes in it, and over the course of a night, and like the guy did it right under a camera, you know, under a light, and an estimated two million dimes were stolen. Now, that sounds terrible, but think about the practicality of that. (laughs) What are you going to do with two million dimes? Excuse me, sir, where'd you get these dimes? Oh, you know, I saved them from uh, my grandmother gave them to me as I was growing up. I mean, what can you say when you try to cash in two million dimes? But I think about that, the desperation to try to take the shortcut with money through stealing two million dimes. And what is that, like $200,000? What's two million dimes? Any math whizzes in here? So I mean, that's a lot of money, but good grief. You got to work your way through two million dimes to get to $200,000? That's going to be a pain. God provides for us in daily doses. Life in the promised land is just like our lives. So, no shortcuts, no quitting, keep running, because the jubilee is coming, the jubilee is coming. Well, let's pray together, and I'll read a quote from Jesus' marvelous Sermon on the Mount, a wonderful few verses that are very relevant to finish it up for application. Jesus said, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our Father, we need to hear these words from Christ because we live in a world where shortcuts or quitting, where compromise against your word is so appealing to those of us who are running the race and weary of running. The the temptation to find some kind of relief, whether it's through Stealing dimes, or whether it's through um, any number of metaphors we could add to it. The compromises we all know, we all have in, in front of us, and we all need to brush aside and continue to walk faithfully with our Lord. Thank you for his promise, these principles that we just read or just heard here in Matthew 6 that we need to not worry about these daily, daily things of provision. You provided manna in the wilderness. You provided during the Sabbath year. You provided during the year of Jubilee. You have provided in our lives, without exception, as we look back, we can see your hand of provision, often surprising, always faithful, giving testimony to your promise that we can also believe for the future. And as Jesus said, your promise for, of provision frees us not to worry about simple things that the world worries about, but we focus instead on what you want us to think about, that is to seek first your kingdom. That is that we see everything we have as a tool for your kingdom, not for our kingdom, not an idol for ourselves, but a tool to serve you. And we seek Your righteousness, that you are pleased not just with moral life or a life that's better than our neighbors, but you're genuinely pleased with a contrite heart. Think about our country that desperately needs you. We live in the same country. We desperately need you. Let it begin with us that we might seek first your righteousness and that our lives would be such a beacon of truth that it would be an irresistible draw to those that desperately need our Savior Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.
1: Thank you, Wayne. Don't forget, choir sing, uh, hymn sing next week, and be sure and bring your, your covered dish. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you.